still in the morning, so at least I didn't get a graveyard shift. I sat last year in the one graveyard shift, and it does get, does get quite tough on everyone, the speakers and the listeners. Um, so thank you for introducing me, Tim. I called my presentation Getting More, Back for your bu- Getting More Buck for Your Bang. Ultimately, as a broadcaster, a media professional, your, uh, m- your media choice of media company is always going to be under some form of pressure to provide revenue returns, whether you're in uh, a public service or not. And as a result, it's important to have some sort of consideration to that, even if you're a content provider or a content producer, to understand opportunities for creating revenue streams. So just who am I? I uh, currently run a media company in Bloemfontein. Uh, we own a number of different di- uh, media assets. Our principal media asset is OFM, the radio station, which was sold off as part of the SABC licenses in '96, and forms one of the original six regional radio stations around the country. Been uh, broadcasting now 30 years and doing incredibly well across the Free State, Northwest and Northern Cape, um, where we've a little bit like Avis in America, or like Hertz, I think, who was number two, they had to try harder. We've certainly, out of the dry, dusty, dark lands of the Free State, we've had to learn how to try a lot harder to be able to provide some additional bottom line revenue. Uh, and we've learned a few tips and tricks that might not uh, be evident amongst commercial stations and big metros. Um, and the purpose, I think, of today was to try and share some of that with you. Okay, so oh, sorry. I just uh, so what we also have in our group of companies, we've also developed a publishing arm where we have two newspapers and a magazine, local newspapers, and a magazine, and we've taken our expertise in direct selling, and we've been able to apply it into other media streams. Central Outdoor is a little outdoor play that we have um, in Bloemfontein specifically. Uh, Red Star is a promotions company. We'll talk a little bit about promotions and how um, you guys can perhaps consider that as part of your mix. And then Digital Platforms uh, is our web development company. Uh, we realized fairly early on in the radio space that we were never going to fight off the internet and at some point we had to start trying to understand it. We've made uh, some great successes, we've had some tremendous failures, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way both as standalone platforms as well as radio linked exercises and ideas. Um, but we, what we th- one thing we did realize is that in order to do anything we had to understand how the technology worked and so we went about hiring Coders, web coders, digital coders, database handlers. Uh, we now have a team of 23 working in Bloom, developing websites, CMS platforms, uh, e-commerce platforms. Well, our most recent project delivered last week in Bahrain to the Bahraini Intelligence Agency, linking all the hotels, accommodation, information back so that they could effectively spy on who was coming and going. <coughs> all right, who can tell me what that is? Anyone? Any ideas? Empty River? It's close. Anyone else? If I told you that it's an icon of Africa? It's the Victoria Falls. And I wanted to show this image because radio has a fairly unique business model. And I I refer to it often as a waterfall model. As a radio player, you have a fairly predictable set of, of fixed costs. You kind of understand what your capital requirements are, you understand what your human capital costs are, um, and by and large, that's very predictable. We have a very low variable cost. Uh, to play another 10 adverts on our radio station effectively costs us zero. So, the moment you hit your break-even number, 
everything else flows down to the bottom line. And that's why I like to think of it as a waterfall. And we can see that is a startup radio station. There's still lots of water on the other side of that cliff. But it's in the riverbed. And it's all sitting there. And even as the water, there's more water evaporating from that river than is coming down the hill. And as a result, there's one tiny little stream over here. And we call this in radio November. We get a little bit of water that comes over this cliff and we have a year-end function because we've turned a corner and then we go back to January and nothing comes over the cliff. Now this is the picture for many radio stations in startup mode, in Greenfields mode. Every Greenfields license in the country has managed to bankrupt its first set of owners. It's an incredibly tough space to play in radio if you're small or you're in startup mode. And so a little bit of what I'm going to talk about today is when you're able to get to the point where water is starting to trickle over, what happens next that you can really start turning that into additional streams? And more importantly, if I take my analogy further, you can see there's little streams of water, there's big fat streams of water. They happen all over the place. And so I like thinking of radio as a waterfall. And this is the picture of a radio station we like seeing is a big gushing water where you can go white water rafting. Unfortunately, this requires the intervention of salespeople. So this is from a series of cartoons that was uh, developed by On-Air Software in the 90s. They thought it would be a good way to get people on the internet looking at their website. And they made up a radio station called KRUD. And you can see the evolution of the sales radio salesperson. The view that most people in radio have of their salespeople is of the serpent offering the apple. And I must say, I haven't seen much to convince me otherwise. So let's talk about revenue first. Where does it come from? Well, predominantly, it's an advertising form of revenue. Advertising is our core business. Uh, we are a medium that is almost entirely funded for the most part on advertising outside of state broadcasters. And in most cases, especially in Africa, even state broadcasters are forced to develop revenue in order to be able to cover their costs. However, there are other forms of revenue, and I'm not sure... Those of you who are in the radio industry at the moment, uh, you know what your setup is or, or where you sit in that industry, but grants are another alternative form of revenue that can be considered. And there's a number of different sources of grants. There's overseas grants. Uh, there's grants that get delivered for content, for specific kinds of content production. Um, and there's specific grants that come in for um, activities or involvement in local communities. And those grants can be seen as a form of revenue towards your business. Subsidies. Um, quite often here, a, a good form of subsidy is government, local government, provincial government, national government. Um, again, those subsidies often come in for specific kinds of content creation uh, or, or specific kinds of activity. Um, other forms of subsidy come in from what would normally be an advertiser. It's sometimes willing to come in and subsidize an activity or an event. Um, or potentially even, again, some form of uh, human capital uh, there have been instances where outside companies pay for a particular presenter or broadcaster to be on a station in order to be able to make sure that their particular interest group is covered. An example here would be Agri, where more often than not, um, Agri does give subsidies to certain positions in certain companies to make sure that there's an expertise on effective reporting and effective journalism in that space. Another example of this would be, and it doesn't apply to radio, but golf pay a guy called Michael Vlismas to go to every Sunshine Tour event and report for whoever wants it for free, but that is an effective form of subsidy for content. And it's something that I think a lot of broadcasters don't pay enough attention to, is 
There are a lot of people out there who want their content distributed, and there are subsidies available for that. Again, sponsorships for content specifically, this is really ultimately where you wind up selling your airtime. Uh, so you're selling programming space. Um, often we see this as advertising, and quite more often than not, it shouldn't be seen as advertising. If you get part of your content mixed right, and you can have the right kind of company involved, often these guys who will be willing to pay for content sponsorship aren't natural advertisers. They might be foundations, they might be education-related institutions who normally wouldn't be, think wouldn't be able to have a single idea what to do with a 30-second spot, but if you give me an hour every Sunday evening between 9 and 10 in the evening, then maybe we have some ability to spend this money on developing what it is their mandate is. And it, again, it's just alternative to advertising. Um, and often, on a broadcaster, if you are specific about what you're looking for, often that content becomes very good content that wouldn't be mainstream. Partnerships. So this is an interesting one that I'll just spend a second explaining. Excuse me, I've... That's uh, delicious. Uh, just come back from a week in Mauritius and arriving back in Chile. The Chile high felt wasn't particularly good for my immune system. Um, so partnerships are something that can be developed for both content as well as revenue. An example of a partnership that we developed, um, and many radio stations did at the time, was with private property. When private property came into being, they were going up against the establishment, which is estate agents and the traditional estate agent model. Uh, they realized they didn't have the money to build their brand through normal advertising methodology, and they had a means of bringing in media partners. Now, because radio traditionally didn't get much money or any money from estate agents, we weren't particularly precious about protecting any interests in that industry. And because private property could give us a link fee or a referral fee, and it was quite easy to see how that could happen. It wasn't complicated. It was straightforward. So in our case, the agreement with private property was every single person from the Free State of the Northern Cape that listed with private property, we got X Rand for. And that was cool, because it actually didn't matter where they came from, but it made it real simple for us to understand that the harder we worked, the more money we made. And of course, using unsold inventory to drive partnerships like this proved very attractive for both private property as well as the radio stations. Uh, many of the commercial stations, and a, a bunch of the guys are here today, uh, benefited tremendously out of private property because we put the hard work out up front for the first year or two, and then once that brand had been built, which was almost entirely built on radio, uh, you could almost sit back as those linkage fees started kicking in. But it takes an alternative model, and the, the trick to developing good radio partnerships that we, for example, have another one with a, a, a web company that does dating sites. They allow you to white-label it, and you brand it your own brand, and you drive memberships, and you get a referral fee for everyone who signs up. And of course, that's perfect for late-night radio. I think dating sites and Sunday nights just go hand-in-hand hand after another unsuccessful week in the field. Um, that becomes an easy thing for us to push. It's off-prime, it's not challenging any advertisers, it's not something we would have attacked, um, and it's something that our audience is potentially interested in. So developing revenue partnerships like that, SMS uh, fees, um, and under the old um, those voice recognition IVR lines did much the same thing, and new technologies will allow us to continue to develop those kinds of partnerships. Um, uh, there's many examples in media with travel agencies, uh, with estate agencies where they're not necessarily natural advertisers, and that's the cool thing, is that you're not replacing revenue with risk, but that you're developing a partnership. Often these are not big revenue earners, let's be honest. This isn't going to be F&B knocking on your door 
and suddenly you can all afford to take the next month off. But just like that waterfall, when you have a whole lot of little streams coming over the top, at the end they all form into a nice big pool. And then the big word that gets thrown around a lot is NTR, non-traditional revenue. And the definition we've chosen to adopt for non-traditional revenue is everything that isn't the 30-second spot, or it's derivative, a 15 or a 45 or a 60. So anything that's not directly spot revenue, we would see as non-traditional. So some of these things would be non-traditional, but some of them would still be driven by the 30-second spot. Um, and NTR in its broadest form. We'll touch on some of the more interesting aspects of that a little bit later. So the first thing to ask is, as a radio professional, is what are you selling? What, are you, what is your product uh, from a sales perspective? Now, many people will say they sell airtime, they sell advertising, uh, they're selling content. But ultimately, what we're selling is we're selling access to an audience. We are the introducers of someone who wants to sell something to someone who might potentially want to buy something. And we provide a nice safe space where they can all come and mix, everyone understands the rules, the advertiser is going to be quite passive in his approach, and the person looking for products and services will also be quite passive in their approach, and they'll mix nice and easily around some cool music and perhaps one or two badly told jokes. And that'll be our business model. And essentially this operates across most of the radio sector. The important aspects are the quality of the audience. And it's a thing sometimes we lose in trying to develop audience size, is that not all advertisers are going to be interested in all audiences all the time, that there is a big business case to be made for niche audiences. And often those can be the most profitable in terms of effort, because you're not trying to please everyone, you're pleasing a small dedicated market of users, and then a small dedicated market of advertisers can come in into that room. The size of the audience is obviously a consideration, but the, um, I find it useful with these sorts of things to create a polar argument where you have a poll. So if one person in the whole world made all the buying decisions for everyone, then you'd only ever need an audience of one. Now naturally, luckily, uh, everywhere except Zimbabwe, that's not the case. So we have lots of people we need to engage with, but size isn't necessarily the predominant um, factor but it does play a role. And then time of audience is also something, uh, and it's one of the reasons radio stations have quite complicated rating systems, rate systems, is because we access different audiences at different times, but we also access the same audience at different times. So to just put that into perspective, let's consider our moods when we're on our way to work, then when we're on our way to that cool lunch where all our colleagues are going to be hanging out and we know the company's picking up the tab, and then how excited we are to go home after that cool long lunch two hours later than we told our wives and just consider the different moods of exactly the same person and their likelihood to think about different products and services at, at those times. This is one of the things that makes radio incredibly effective against other forms of media is that because we're so personal and we can access that timing aspect that makes that premium that you can attach to certain audiences at certain times quite high. It's something that TV is losing with time shifting. It's losing that TV no longer knows when I'm going to watch Game of Thrones or even the news or even the rugby game. And therefore, that aspect of it is becoming more difficult for traditional TV buyers in the time shifting space. Another important consideration in terms of what you're selling, and too often... I think we tend to lose sight of that a little bit as well as you're selling the credibility of your brand. 
Because you sell the credibility of your brand both to your audience as well as to your advertisers. And that means that for a radio station that focuses on dance music 24 hours a day with young presenters projecting this great lifestyle of abundance and debauchery, that the uh, insurance company probably isn't likely to be your number one target as an advertiser purely because of the kind of mix of content that you might have. But the credibility of your brand, both to your audience and to advertisers, is absolutely a part of that sale. So two main sources of advertising, and I'll flick through some of this stuff. I'm sure it's uh, fairly basic. Uh, at a radio station, we tend to have national or agency business, and we tend to have local or direct business. Um, I find amongst many radio professionals that there's an over-reliance on one or the other. We're in the very fortunate situation that we've had to develop a very high level of competence in the direct sale, given where we are in the free state, but we also generate a significant portion of our money from national and agency revenue. So we're about 55% local money, about 45% agency money. As a result, uh, we've been able to almost see the best of both worlds, and that ultimately is what I'll touch on quickly today. So some of the emerging trends in national agency business, those of you who are looking to perhaps do better in that space, we're seeing the first thing you need to be as a radio station, and which is cool because you have the ability to do it, is to be flexible. There is no doubt that the modern media agency, the modern advertising agency, is, I mean, if I have to go to one more meeting in here, we need an out-of-the-box idea. Uh, you know, we don't even know where the box is anymore. Uh, the box isn't allowed in the room, so we're out of the box the moment we start discussing anything. Uh, this, uh, this ability to be flexible and interesting and novel and conceptual is an important part. Now, most radio stations aren't in the situation where they can refuse business, but on the other hand, most radio stations are quite dogmatic, and I think rightly so, about their content and their programming strategy. And the trick is to find the good balance between those two things. The, the way we've always been able to get around that kind of very um, dictatorial approach, perhaps potentially from agencies, is to just ask a different question. And the question is, what would you like this campaign to achieve? Because that question ultimately refocuses away from the mechanics or the idea or, or, or the silly stunt someone dreamed up after last year's Christmas party. And it focuses again on, on what's required for the client. And often, more often than not, we've had success in changing the agency's approach to us and things we haven't felt comfortable with. When we understand the objective, we're able then to suggest changes that suit us, but then also suit them. And it's perhaps something just to bear in mind that being flexible uh, doesn't mean that you just do anything, but if you have a common objective. The second thing is creativity. Um, is becoming ever more important. We're seeing that the agency model, the creative agency model at the moment, is incredibly difficult for radio. The over-reliance on the 30-second spot has meant that um, creativity is often limited to the script, and then when it comes to conceptualizing what must happen on the radio station, there's, uh, there's a very low level of experience in the agency side of the business as to that sort of general creativity, the big idea, the idea is almost limited to the radio campaign. And I think that it has a lot to do with the way procurement's being handled and a lot to do with the fact that I think most agencies find themselves understaffed in critical areas. 
But it's where the radio station can really stand out, is if you're able to take this idea of creativity with what you can do with radio as opposed to what the ad should say, and you're able to do that. Now, a good tip to that is just quite simply take your team away, take five cases of beer and put it on the table, and then write down everything everyone says over the next three hours. Because what that allows you to do is it allows you to have almost a warehouse of stuff. Um, we found that very useful. I mean, we, we've literally sold ideas to a client that we had six years prior. And it was sitting there. And we thought about it. We thought through it a little bit. And at the moment, the client said, I have a need for this thing. Hey, remember that thing we discussed? And we were able to go and haul it out of a drawer and dust it off. And we'd all already agreed and made it fit into what we were trying to achieve. And that kind of warehouse of ideas means you can have a quicker turnaround time on creativity. But it also means, more often than not, when you get approached with a request, they don't have the experience to, to edit their own request. So they're going to try the best they can to look intelligent with the request. And then you're going to treat that like an order. Hey, I want cheeseburger and chips. As opposed to, are you hungry and can I make a recommendation for something else? And then that something else must just be on hand. So the ability to be creative... I think to some extent relies on being prepared to be creative. But mostly, the pressure you're under at a national situation is this. The, um, the whole layer of procurement in the agency space has meant that many, many media agencies are now being incentivized purely on added value and discounts. So what some companies in South Africa have done is they've massively overinflated their rate card and then massively discounted the rate card back. Um, and that puts, that, that puts pressure on people that don't have pricing power because all we look at is we look at that discount. We're not looking at the base value. If I told you this chair was, was 10 bucks, you might say, well, that's a deal or it's not a deal. If I said this chair is 20 bucks, but I'm going to give you 10 rand off, that changes the basic perception of the value of this chair. Um, so those of us without pricing power in the marketplace are at odds with this particular form of discounting where it's really just a number minus another number, and we'll touch a little bit on some of the discounting strategies that you can, that you can deal with. One of the discounting strategies that you can have is to create some premium spaces. So too often we have a rate card, that rate card becomes our Bible, that's the thing we all refer to, we've made up a number. And let's be absolutely honest, radio rates are all made up. We've all made up a number we think looks good on that piece of paper. So let's not... Pretend that this is scientific. So the ability to create a premium space allows you to discount the premium space back to your base rate card. But the concept of premium is always perceptual. Any kind of premium brand has invested in creating a perception that it's a premium brand and then can therefore command a price premium. The same thing exists in your companies. This ability to create some premium spaces. Now, there are some natural premium spaces, and those tend to be where your audience is large. Too often than not, we forget about the niche audiences and the kind of content and premium spaces that we can apply to them. Bespoke content is another form of discounting where you are able to provide far more uh, product or advertiser-focused content um, as part of the mix. So there's a big difference between a three-minute, and I'm by all means not advocating this as a good marketing strategy, but a three-minute bespoke interview, for some reason, carries enormously higher premium than the six minutes of advertising time. 
And so this ability to be able to find the way to find where the premium perception is on the national advertising side is another form of discounting because when you provide six 30-second spots worth of time and you're able to double the price because of the value attached to it, that's the same thing as discounting it in the first place, except you're still maintaining your revenue level and your rate integrity for that. And then adding non-inventory items is a simple little trick. Um, are there any accountants in the room? Any accountants? Okay, excellent. We can continue. So what tends to happen is, now that the accountants have taken over the world, is that we consistently get bashed on things like discounting and inventory levels and yield rates and all sorts of weird things. When you take non-inventory items and you throw them into the mix, the cool thing is, is that most scheduling systems don't pick that up as inventory. So it allows you to discount without it being reported as discount. Because truth be told, that extra five-second mention actually doesn't carry any inventory value. So even reporting it as five seconds of value is inaccurate. <coughs> Non-inventory items traditionally would be things like billboards, sponsorships, power spots, uh, things you mention as an aside, a competition, a joke, uh, a phone call to the CEO on his birthday, uh, and all sorts of things that can be floated through as content can go back into that discounting space. And because you're not giving away inventory for the discount, to some extent you're maintaining your rate integrity there as well. Just things to consider. And of course, adding value. So we have two flip sides to the discounting thing. We have making it cheaper or giving you more for the same price. Again, this is just something we've invented to keep the accountants guessing. But adding value is something that we must start bringing into our business models. And we've, we've seen where we do it. We get way above return on effort in terms of relationship, in terms of return bookings, in terms of uh, feedback and overlooking perhaps small glitches that might have happened. So a couple of uh, tips here, adding value. Digital. Now again, the accountants will not agree with me, but there are large swaths of your digital offering that currently get given away for free. Now that shouldn't happen because digital can't be seen as a free thing. But the, op the opposite side of that is that we do have unlimited inventory with digital, which that means that additional inventory is free. So don't give away prime spots as part of the package on your, on your website. That's a mistake. But creating a splash page as part of the campaign over and above either what you promised or throwing it into the promise, obviously you need the expertise to do it. And to that end is one of the reasons we went out and found some web coders. It now takes us less than an hour to create something. It took us five meetings in three weeks and probably 20,000 rand eight years ago. We can now just make it happen through our own CMS. But there is still tremendous value in a visual element. People like seeing stuff. Radio stations have always been a little bit on the short end of that because you can't see our stuff and listening to it happens linearly. In other words, it's a three-minute interview. I have to listen to the whole three-minute interview to experience it. But a splash page for the competition or the campaign or the piece of content that you sold, I can experience almost instantaneously as a perceptual item. And it's really easy to make visual stuff look good, which is why print has way overextended its life cycle because ad print ads still look good and they look good immediately. So introducing other visual content, things, for example, that can be introduced depending on whether it makes sense or not, are things like posters, which ad add additional visual content. 
but also having a little, uh, what do you call these things, tripods, and your phone on a tripod, and you press record when we did the interview with the CEO that he demanded on the discounting side, when we record that and give it back to them with their logo and our logo, which you can now do instantaneously on your cell phone, these items are free and require almost no skills, to test it, I tried one last night. Actually, I have less than no skills, so I couldn't get it right, because I thought I might just prove my point, but I wasn't the right guinea pig. But the truth is, is that this ability to be able to put some short-form video and make it look nice with, with basic animation is now simple. It takes just a little bit of effort. And it's often the effort that is worth more than actually what you require in terms of the package. Because you're only ever delivering what you promised on the discounting side. On the added value side, it's often what you didn't promise. And that visual content. If you did a competition, having a little cell phone or a video camera, I mean, they're also now cheap. Or if you have the funds, a, a, a proper digital camera that you can edit on fairly easily afterwards, sitting in the studio or even a static camera that you can take a feed from, showing the DJ doing the competition, they're still going to listen to him do it because it has a soundtrack. But I can now watch him do it as well. And that, let's not forget, adds value to the feedback section. You make the agency look good when they've got a bit of a video clip of what happened. They get to see the inside of your studio. It's nice, it looks nice and professional, all your logos, your presenter that you're overpaying because she's beautiful now appears in the video as well and all of those cool things come through into added value. And the tricky one ethically is this concept of databases. We find a lot of big campaigns, the advertisers are coming to us looking for our database. We've taken the approach that if we create a new database in a digital format for that campaign, we'll provide you with that database because effectively you've paid for it, but we'll never provide you with anything from our databases. But we've found that even low-reaction databases have a high perceptual reward when they get it. So we've run radio competitions where we've had you know, 200 people take part on the website. And we're embarrassed because we're used to in radio hearing of hundreds of thousands. If, your audience, if you don't have a 5 million audience, you're irrelevant in South Africa. You need always thousands and thousands and thousands to make anything happen. And when we delivered the 200-name database of people that took part, the advertiser came back and said, that expectation blew them away. And guys, it's quite simple. We understand 200 people. We've been to parties where there's 200 people. You've got a function all the time, and it's a big function. There's lots of stuff going on. It's cool. There's lots of people. We don't understand 400,000 people. It's just not something we can comprehend. How much space does 400,000 people take? We don't know. So even on this, but that added value of the database and the feedback... Uh, is often something that has a very high perceptual reward amongst national clients. And then social media, you know, I, I and my colleague Nick Stafford will speak after me, and I have fairly divergent views on the value of social media. Um, I'm not a big believer that it actually makes a difference for a, brand, for a brand or an advertiser in the long run in terms of selling product, but the perceptual value is incredibly high. People like seeing interaction, engagement, and conversation. I'm not sure it ever really translates into a balance sheet item, but this ability for radio stations, who generally are pretty good at social media because we've been told to, and because we have people working for us who like it. Um, I think Twitter has been created almost only for politicians and media professionals. That seems to be who's on there. But the point is, is that the ability for us to create those campaigns in a Instagram, uh, on Pinterest, on Facebook, and on Twitter just takes a little bit of effort.
Now, whether you monetize it or not is up to you, but it's hard to monetize when you only have two or 3,000 people following you on Facebook, for example. But the perceptual value as part of your post-campaign analysis, where you can print out or you know, put it into the presentation, the actual posts, people like seeing faces of people. The perceptual value for that is very good, and we see, again, tremendous feedback where we do that as added value into the national market, where we just give that feedback as part of the post-campaign. The fact that we didn't charge them for it and we went and put that stuff on Pinterest anyway, you know what, it took us four minutes, but it looks good and it helps us stand out amongst national advertisers. All right, let's flick through to direct advertisers. This is perhaps where some of, some of what I say might be a little bit less scientific and a little bit more controversial and might sound a little bit like that, like that salesperson in the cartoon, but I spent six years as a sales director in, in a radio environment and I think I have a fairly good understanding of what drives direct advertising. I found this on the internet last night. Obviously, this has a little bit more to do with religion, uh, and I found one that didn't refer to religion directly. But ultimately, the difference between science and faith is this. Is science has a method that's quite complicated, and most people get wrong on the second step. They get an idea and then experiment the wrong stuff. How many times have we got a piece of research back and we say, well, I disagree with that question. Didn't ask the right question. We haven't asked the right question. The experiment's failed. You fail. When you're dealing with direct advertisers, you cannot use science. You have to use faith. Faith has a different cycle. Faith is, get an idea. Next block, ignore all the evidence to the contrary of your idea. Next block, discover new evidence. If I like a radio station because I listen to the radio station, that radio station is almost guaranteed at some point to make a sale to me. If I don't like a radio station, and I don't like the presenters, no amount of science is going to fix that perception, because we suffer from something in decision-making called perceptual bias, which means if I think this, and I'm rational, and I'm educated, and I'm experienced, then surely everybody thinks this. And I mean, let's be honest, we, we suffer from that a lot. It's not just me, there's lots of other people who think just like me. Um, so I want us, with some of the things I'm going to say now about direct advertising, to consider that we are applying a faith strategy as opposed to a science strategy. I'll give you a very basic example of what I'm talking about. Radio stations around the world live and die on ratings. They spend lots of money on providing research uh, to prove audience size, audience demographics, audience segmentation, uh, some sort of audience data, which gets consumed voraciously by the national market because they need to be able to justify the decisions they were going to make anyway, and then this makes for nice pie charts and graphs. So that the guy who's paying the fee for all of this consultation feels he's getting his money worth. Now, any of you who've worked anything with statistics know you can get the statistics anything you want, especially when no one really understands the data in the first place, so that's quite straightforward. But that then applies some sort of pseudoscience, and everyone feels, well, we're going through all of these steps. How often are you asked the question, how big is your audience? Okay, now I can tell you that the moment we stopped talking about the size of our audience, we stopped being asked about the size of our audience. Because the very simple answer to that question is, how big do you need it to be? Does anyone know the answer to that question? As a direct advertiser, they do not know the answer to that question. And then there's that awkward silence where 
They, we both realize none of us really know the answer to this question in any way because, of course, if we did give you an answer, then they'd want to know, well, how do you get to that answer? Then we'd have to explain rams. Now, we don't even trust rams, but now we've got to explain it. Now, half of us don't understand how rams works in the first place. So now we are literally like two blind men wandering through a maze discussing the merits of chicken as a base for soup. It, it's just the most mindless conversations come when we try to introduce science into the direct advertiser space. Most often you're dealing with people that aren't marketing trained anyway. They're either owners or entrepreneurs. They're good operators. They know how to get trucks driving across the country or they know how to fill the shelves with stock. And the moment you start talking about marketing gobbledygook, it actually gets confusing. But I have yet to meet a successful businessman who will ever admit he doesn't understand what you're talking about. So we've got to pretend to understand and then we've got to pretend to ask questions to show how much we understand. And you watch a salesperson who doesn't understand the first thing about research, talking to a client who doesn't understand the first thing about research, about research, it's a recipe for a disaster. So faith is our strategy with direct advertisers. When you deal with a direct advertiser, your number one question should be, what do you want this thing to achieve? What is your objective? What is your goal? What do you want? I can tell you now, 95% direct advertisers will not be able to give you an answer. But I've also learned the hard way that appearing intelligent doesn't come from having answers, it comes from having good questions. Because everyone assumes when you answer a good question that you already know the answer, even if you don't have the vaguest idea. So asking someone about the objective, or the ROI, or the amount of volume sales, or the amount of tires, or hamburgers, or whatever it is that they're selling, what percentage must your sales increase by to meet your objective? I guarantee you they don't know. But we're now starting to talk about stuff that at least they understand, which is their business. So it's a good question to ask. Also, it gives you something to aim at, and it gives us something to discuss. If a client says to you, I need to improve in this, in this two-day campaign with the nine spots I've been able to buy, I want to improve my sales by 20%, you know you're not going to get any repeat business from this client. So you can either set, set, reset his level of expectation and have a proper consultation with him, or you can take the money and run. But either way, you know what's going to happen next. At least you've got that information. You need to remove non-information out of your stuff. Non-information. Audience figures are non-information. They are entirely entirely useless when it comes to these conversations. We do not even tell our salespeople what our audience numbers are. They do not know because when they do know, they feel compelled to tell other people and then they ask them how they got that number and we're back to talking about research that no one understands. So we say, trust us that we have enough listeners to get this job done. If they listen to your radio station, they believe everyone else listens to your radio station, and we're back into the faith system working for you. So appeal to faith. Clearly we're not saying mislead people. Clearly we're not saying lie about anything. All I'm asking you to do is in your proposals, in your discussions, and in your pitches, take out the stuff that doesn't matter to what you need to do with that advertiser. Too often we have these standardized proposals that we filled with data because a four-page proposal looks like we've done a lot of work, then it's standardized across everyone and it actually just becomes non-information. That's the proposal that sits on someone's desk for three weeks and then they tell you they don't have budget. They did have budget. Oh, that's the other thing. I actually forgot to put this on. Most direct advertisers don't work with a budget. They work with a decision. I like this, I don't like this. And everything that happens in that sales process is going to determine whether they like it or they don't like it. Forget the rate card. We do not have a direct rate card. That doesn't mean we charge different rates. It means I don't walk into a direct conversation with a rate card. Why? 
because rate cards sit in science. How did you get to that rate? Well, it's based on cost per thousand conversion of audience across this demographic. Oh, really? That's interesting. Now, if we say, well, we made up the rate card, we destroy the whole scientific argument. So just ignore the rate card and come back with a number and an idea and a concept that you think will get the job done. The other thing about this is it makes your salespeople accountable. Salespeople that walk with rate cards are not accountable for what happens next. Because why? I gave you a menu and you ticked it off the menu. That's what you wanted. When we have those little grids and I want one spot there and three spots there, which is the next thing, the schedule or plan is my last point there. Don't show them a schedule or plan as far as you can. We should be scheduling and planning. But now when you show them a complicated four-week plan, the client needs to add value. So what does he do? He moves this spot from here to here. And this spot from here to here. And can I get three spots there, not one spot there? Now that is an entirely ridiculous argument because it's, again, based on nothing other than I need to feel... feel. But now the rep has to go back to the station to redo the proposal and come back to repitch it. The data complicates the discussion. Proposals versus quotes. Schedules with spots and crosses and big calculations done out of Excel are quotes. That is how you buy a tire. It's maybe how you buy insurance, but it isn't how you buy direct radio. Why? Because it doesn't suit the faith model. Okay, and if we had to go into the faith model, you show me a church that will give you a quote to get into heaven. They don't do it. They tell you the kinds of things you must believe and think in order to be able to achieve that end. And that, on the faith model, it comes back down to a proposal, which is an idea or a concept. And the concept is aligned to your objective. Everything in this proposal is going to be about your business. None of it is going to be about my radio station. Not only is that the only thing a client is interested in is his own business, but also it starts feeling like we're all working towards the same thing. You're not just trying to get commission out of me. Uh, and then simple. So what do proposals look like? Proposals have little things, like they have your client's logo on the front page. They talk about the objective we discussed in the last meeting. It summarizes two of the things the client said in that meeting that almost have nothing to do with it at all, but are in the document that showed you were listening to him when you actually asked the question that makes it personal, that makes it about my business. Standardized quotes have no place in direct sales and will almost, almost very predictably lead to an incredibly low conversion rate. They need to be simple, guys. You need to be able to flick through it in two pages. If you need to present it, you can have four or five slides, but you need to get through it real quick. Beyond the spot schedule, what are some of the other things that we need to take into account? Well, on a direct sales perspective, package selling, by and large, is done incredibly badly by direct sales teams because they are made complicated and they then apply the faith model into packaged selling, which really is just a form of discounting. So what we do and what many commercial stations around the country do is run annual sales where we've packaged up certain amounts of airtime, we've commoditized it, we've given it a name, it has a brand, it has a purpose, it has a whole set of rules that are almost entirely tilted towards us, and then we discount the hell out of it. But you can do it once a year, and you can do it today, and you sign this document now, and then you're committed for 12 months, and you're going to let us schedule all of these spots. And they're going to be almost entirely for the purpose of brand building. Because too often radio is used as a short-term, come-to-my-shop-now type thing where we don't understand what the shop's about. So we do package selling, a long-term commitment, very flexible scheduling where we make no promises, standardized offering, production is included in the, in the picture, and then it's about acquiring new advertisers. 
So it's, predominant, it's predominantly there for people who don't know how to use radio. Radio is complicated to buy, so we build that for them. Digital is quite straightforward. You should have a directory on your website. Every advertiser that's with you should be listed in the directory as a business you can trust. Truth be told, if they're not a business you should trust, you probably shouldn't be taking their advertising in the first place. So that's a cool thing to market to your community. Page takeovers have been very successful for us in the digital space, um, predominantly because they're short-term, they're identifiable, and they're tangible. Classifieds in the digital space have been very good on our website. Whether they're free classifieds or not, it provides another space to insert some advertising. And then content-specific podcasts, I think, are totally underdone in our, in our environment. Google is the best friend we have, and the more content you can chuck onto your website that's specific to topics, the more likely they are to get found, and people are prepared to pay for them. So let's talk about NTR for a second. This is one of the products we do in the NTR space. It's called the Hitmobile. We really just invested in a few vehicles, some branding, and an entirely different team. Your presenters are absolutely the worst people to send to remotes. They don't like people. They don't want to talk to people. They certainly don't want to engage with a guy who owns the Spanish shop. And then the Tani who brings the donuts, because I heard you were going to be here today. And almost certainly they'll spend 90% of the time behind the corner smoking with the hot secretary. So don't take your presenters to these things unless they're absolutely paid for or they're doing a broadcast. So we recruited a whole bunch of young, outgoing personalities that were never going to make it in radio because they were probably too balanced and said to them, hey, go and talk to people and engage them in the product on the ground and we'll give it a different name. And the Hitmobile, you can see a couple of iterations of pictures there. It creates the perception something's going on. Clients are generally very bad at organizing these kinds of things. They do it a little bit half-assed. These guys come with a uniform. It looks good. It looks smart. We couple it with telephone crossings. So during the course of the day, they're saying, hey, we're down at the Spanish shop and Spanners are five rand now. Come down and check it out. Uh, the client feels like he's getting value because there's lots of radio in there as well. And by and large, they have phenomenal results because they are doing something at the store. And people drive past the store, see something's going on. It's got our branding on it, so it must be pretty cool. And off they go in and they get big high foot traffic on the day. And everyone thinks they've won. These things are fairly cheap and easy to do. We operate this at about a 70% margin. And it gets our brand out there and it makes us look like we're all over the region. I mean, we've got four provinces to cover. We sometimes will do up to nine hitmobiles across a weekend, across all four provinces and probably seven or eight different towns. And it's good for us as well. It gives us a marketing premium. But more importantly, and it's a little shift in, in balance in terms of our approach, the promotion activity adds actual value for your direct advertiser as opposed to the perceived value that radio adds. But radio is the support medium in this particular aspect. Too often we make radio the lead medium where radio is not going to do much. Radio at best will inform. But if nothing's happening, I'm telling you about, hey, the fact that nothing's happening a lot. So now we create something to talk about, and that gets the result for the advertiser, but the radio station is the hero. So other forms of NTR, and I won't go into these, events. Events are risky, they can be expensive, but many radio stations are doing very well off eventing, especially in the bigger markets. Uh, events are often niche in their appeal, and the radio station can then talk specifically to their audience about those events. Outside broadcasts, um, I, I have limit, I mean, I think in a radio environment, we have limited appeal for that. We don't like doing them a lot, but where we do do them, we get tremendous feedback, and people are more than willing to pay for your brand and radio station to be there for the day. Festivals and expos give you a wonderful opportunity for pop-up radio. So we've had good successes. We've created pop-up radio stations, for Nampu, which is a big agricultural expo that happens every year, they get about 800 exhibitors, about 75,000 people come through the gate, and we create a four-day radio station for them. Why? 
because they kept wanting to put those crappy adverts on our radio station. So we said, let's just create another radio station. Then we can sit and talk about your vint pump for an hour, and you'll pay for it. And they do. And we make good money out of it. And we have it on an FM frequency. They get an event license for it, and we run it for them. And they get the license, and we make the cash. It's a, it's a cool... It's, but most festivals and expos, you don't have to have it on FM. You can stream it as well. We'll pay for pop-up radio because it allows you to talk about them. Pure web display and content is a great form of NTR, web display, banners, buttons, and so forth. The thing to remember about websites is that you almost have 100% margin on any advertising you stick on your website. Because you had to have the website anyway. And when you sell a button on it, if it was 500 bucks, the 500 bucks goes straight to your bottom line. It's a better margin than the radio ad. You might have sold them for the same money. Um, but your web display is still a nice sell-on and add-on to a local sale. And content on the web, pages, links, little bits of video that you get from somewhere else. Guys like that. It's a nice form of revenue. Basic production work. We get voiceover work from local schools who come in and read the stuff. Uh, really, production is, a, is an underutilized form, and mostly our production studios aren't full all the time. So it's a nice add-on for NTR. And then contests at a product. Too often, um, in my experience, is that the competitions are given away for free, or you have to buy a whole lot of advertising to get the competition as part of the thing. You can run competitions as a standalone product. They still have a very disruptive nature. They're still very compelling content if there's a nice idea. And we found advertisers, lots of local advertisers, willing to pay just for the competition without any other elements. Some last ideas for you. Streaming is a low-cost business. We're definitely investigating streaming as an opportunity for us to expand. Audiovisual uh, replays. Uh, in other words, if something happens in studio, package it, put it back on your website, and you, that branding lasts for a very long time, you can have an add-on cost for that. Pure risk partners. We discussed that earlier with introduction fees and linkage fees. But more and more radio is going to have to be innovative about how it attracts people to radio. If you have an entire industry that doesn't advertise on your radio station, approach the biggest one and try and formulate a partnership. Not only will you be able to, you're not harming anyone, but you might often attract other people from that industry into your station. And then branded content. Um, there's a number of ways of doing this, but we're finding lots of people willing to pay for the creation of branded content, and then we find a place to put it down for them. Most importantly, don't get desperate. There's nothing worse than those local ads that were scripted and voiced by the same guy who paid for them. Still maintain integrity on what happens on your radio station. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Gary. I think the message is there's still money to be made in radio. You just have to think about it differently. I know Gary will stick around for the lunch. Um, if you have any questions about uh, the presentation, uh, I'm going to ask that you ask them over there. We are running a little bit behind schedule. And thanks again uh, to Gary for more uh, bang back into our buck.